as we're going to get started if you want to find a seat. We are in, um, in the church calendar, we are in a season called Ordinary Times, though it should actually, I think, be called Ordinal Time, the ordering of time. Um, you know, there's cardinal numbers that indicate quantity, and there's ordinary, ordinal numbers that indicate order or sequence. So ordinary time actually just means the sequence of the 52 weeks of the year, um, the part that's not like interrupted by special seasons like Lent or Easter tide. So it's, it's not ordinary time as in like unremarkable or boring. It's just ordin like the order of time, um, ordered time, structured time, structured around a common purpose, which is to organize our common life together in such a way that we begin to image God to all creation, right? We experience shalom, which is peace, everything in its proper place, doing what it was intended to do, and um, relating rightly to everything else that is, and thereby all of it flourishing. That, that's the goal. And part of how we do this is by ordering time and, and these rhythms of like weekly worship. So at Redemption, we're kind of in, in the midst of trying to get everybody back from the COVID shutdown, right? And getting us back to meeting and purpose because um, there's, there's uh, some, I don't know, work of the spirit that's present when two or three are gathered in a way that it's not when you're just watching the live stream from home. Something happens when we're all together. God shows up and shapes us and teaches us in order to help us see how we can be fully human as human was intended. Another big part of how we order our time is to study scripture together. And one of our traditions at Redemption is to spend our summers um, studying from the Old Testament during ordinary time. Um, I actually try to preach, if I can, half the year, a little less than half usually from the Old Testament for the simple reason that this is the Bible Jesus read. This was the scripture that shaped his Imagination had a massive impact on Christ. And so if we want to understand what he's doing, we need to read the scriptures that shaped his imagination. Last summer, if you remember, we did our origin stories and read through much of Genesis. This year, we're going to jump ahead and read Exodus through the summer. And um, as we begin this morning with Exodus, I want to um, remind us all of how we approached Genesis and really all ancient literature, especially biblical literature, because there, it's, the, it's a big question, especially people ask this with the Old Testament. Did this stuff really happen, right? Did the Exodus, for instance, really happen? If not, how do we deal with that? And if so, did it happen like it says? And what did it mean? And it's not that those aren't important questions, but they are rooted in this, this assumption that the people who wrote the Old Testament simply did not make. They sort of assume that the purpose of writing a history is accuracy. And ancient Hebrews were not looking for accuracy. They were looking for meaning. Like with Exodus, there are kind of two extremes. One that says it's pure history, right? Everything happened exactly as it says, all the way down to like the number of pharaoh's chariots or something and, and others see it as just pure myth none of this ever really happened it's it's all appropriated from other myths and other canaanite cultures neither of those extremes i think do justice to the book of exodus as it stands now so the kind of the way that i like to to think about it just for me is to say exodus is rooted in historical events something happened like there's just too much evidence to, to ignore something or dis, 
dismiss that. But it wasn't written in the form of history. It was written in the literary form of ancient myth. By, by myth, don't get me wrong, I don't mean it didn't happen. We mean it wasn't written like, say, a newspaper account of events or a history book. It was written within the constraints of this genre uh, of literature, ancient Near Eastern mythology. And, and so it, it, would be like, um, it would be like writing a song or telling a joke about events that actually really happened. So anybody heard of Mike Morbiglia? Anybody watch him on Netflix? Dude is hilarious. He's one of my favorites. But he, he writes these long, hour-long comedy specials that explore some big event from his personal life that actually happened, like how he fell in love or when they had their first child. And he's talking about actual historical events, but in the form of a joke. And a joke is meant to be funny. And so he takes certain liberties with the story to make it funny. And, and the listeners know exactly what he's doing. They're not confused by this. And so they adjust the way that they listen. So it's not like they're going, you didn't really say that. Like, come on, Mike Berbiglia. Like, you're, you're making that part up. That's not really how it really... They listen in, in a way that takes the genre into account. So when we read the Old Testament, we have to do this. We have to listen in a way that takes the genre into account. And the, um, for us... In especially the Torah, the first five books uh, of the scriptures, um, history or like historical writing for the sake of accuracy, it didn't even exist as a form of literature. This is not what people wrote down at the time. Ancient people, when they wrote their own histories, they did it in the form of these mythological stories in order to, you know, spice it up, like to prove that their God is the most powerful or to prove that, that their nation is favored or, or just to connect their story to the overarching story of like the cosmic story uh, about the nature of reality and the meaning of life. And obviously for us in Exodus, the, the main story in the whole book or at least the most familiar one, is about the people of God's liberation from bondage in Egypt. But for the Israelites, the story is about much, much more than that. And in Christianity as a whole, in Judaism today, modern-day Judaism, not everybody even agrees on what the story means or which parts of the story actually happened, what was embellished for mythological effect, what was like appropriated from surrounding cultures. And so sort of the best that I think we can say is that the Exodus is rooted in actual historical events, which were recorded in the form of an ancient Near Eastern mythology. And so we can't get too overly concerned with trying to like scientifically or with archaeology like prove that, that the narrative actually happened. If we turn into Indiana Jones here, like this will be a huge mistake, right? It, it, we can't be concerned with whether it happened exactly as it happened. We have the text we have. This is our scripture. And so we have to take the text as it come to, comes to us and on its own terms, it sets the terms. As it, as it reveals to us um, things about God, about ourselves, about each other, and the world around us. For instance, the book of Exodus can be roughly divided into three sections. There's this, the oppression and then deliverance or Exodus narrative. Then there's this middle section about wilderness and covenant and law, and a final section about divine presence and, and the building of the tabernacle. And interpreters draw very different conclusions 
about the meaning of these three sections. Um, some of them, like for the first, we'll focus on um, the power of God. Others will talk about injustice. Some will talk about liberation. Others about emancipation or, um, or even politics. In the middle section, some people will focus on like the, the covenant between God and Israel. It's all about covenant, covenant. Others will talk about the wilderness and what happens in the wilderness. Some talk about trusting God or judgment or even leadership. I've seen leadership things get, get modeled on that. The final section, some people just um, focus on the character of God. Some focus on the character of Moses or the role of priests. It's huge for that. The name of God how revelation works, how to hear from God. I mean, people can look at the same events and draw even opposing, contradictory com- compu- um, like conclusions from these things. Some will see divine judgment right where somebody else sees divine favor. And sort of what I want us to see is that this is not a bug. This is a feature. It is supposed to be like this. In fact, our approach to, to Old Testament when we read it will be... Um, nearest to our interpretive approach would be nearest to um, Midrash, uh, Jewish interpretation. It's, it's to hold all these warring um, interpretations in tension with each other. It's, it's really a rabbinic mode of reading. The, the rabbis, you know, they, um, they see themselves as part of the whole of Scripture, not like that the, the Torah is, is separate from them and they're trying to just read it and interpret it. Rather, their lives get drawn up into the text, into Torah, and they're participating in it, bringing it to life as they, they read, not operating as a distance. We're trying for that, to immerse ourselves in the story, our story in God's story. And, and they even try to, in Midrash, hold contradictory interpretations in tension. Almost like they're both true. We just don't know how they're both true. Because the goal is not to nail down the one right interpretation. The goal is to encounter God. A God who can never be nailed down to any one thing. And as soon as you do, God will just, you know, mess with that thing. It's sort of like the, um, the walking wall analogy we used a few weeks ago. We have to pick up all these stones, right? And we carry them all forward. We take the text and all the ways that it's been interpreted, right or wrong in our opinion, down through the years. We carry it all with us as we build the church anew on the, the current ground of culture. And there's wide latitude to disagree about what actually happened and even what it means. Because the point is not to get to one right interpretation. The point is to encounter God, to meet God, and to, to stick together as we hold different ideas in tension with one another. Worst churches in the world are where everybody agrees. Like, your job is to resist everything I'm saying to you, all right? And I'll keep trying to convince you, and you keep trying to resist, and then whatever, right, sticks, we'll just call that wisdom. We'll call that true, the truth of this place, right? Um, by the way, for the next five weeks, we're doing, um, on Wednesdays at noon, we're going to do a midrash and we're just going to bring our brown bag lunches, hang out for an hour and a half or so, and talk through this text, talk, crash life, current events into this text. We might ignore the text completely and just talk about life, but we'll gather in there for at noon on Wednesdays and invite anybody to come be a part of that, and we'll just try to learn how to do midrash. But hopefully that'll give you some direction on where we're headed um, this summer in the book of Exodus. But let's jump into the text. Let me read. This is Exodus chapter 1. And 
These are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt with Jacob. Each man came with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All told, there were 70 descendants of Jacob. Joseph was already in Egypt. So it begins here um, with the names of what will become the future tribes of Israel. And, and this all stems from what we read last year, the book of, of Genesis. In fact, in the Hebrew tradition, um, they name the books of the Torah using basically the first significant word they come to in the first phrase. Uh, and, and here they decided the most significant word in the first phrase is names, which in Hebrew is Shemot. So they, the Hebrew Bible um, doesn't name this book Exodus. They call it Shemot, the Shemot, or, or Sefer Shemot, the, the book of names. The, the Greek practice was to figure out the theme and name it thematically, um, that's why we call it the Exodus. But in the Hebrew Bible, this is the Shemot. And here in the first few verses, there's a ton of like deep connection to Genesis, which we just read last year. And the, in Hebrew, the very first word is Vav, which means and, which is kind of a weird way to start a book. It book starts with and, but it does. It, the last word in Genesis is Mitzrayim. It's, it means Egypt. And, and Joseph, it, we're told... It, dies in, in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, and he is embalmed, which is an Egyptian practice. It's buried in a coffin. That's not how they did things for, with the people of God. And, and he's left in Mitzrayim, in Egypt. Then turn the page on Genesis, open up Exodus, and it begins with and. So it's connected to what came before. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt. Really, um, the proper way to view the book of Exodus is actually sort of like chapter 2 in a five-chapter book called Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In fact, the very first phrase, the first six words in Hebrew of Exodus 1 are actually a repetition, a quote from Genesis 46, 8. And these are the names, Shemot, of the sons of Israel. This is a direct quote from Genesis. And we're told that there are 70 of them, which you might take to be a literal 70 men, or you might know that 70 in, in Hebrew often just means that was everybody, like the whole family came. We didn't leave anybody behind. Somebody, sometimes 70 just means we brought the whole clan. And then it says Joseph died, as did all his brothers and all that generation. And then we're told the descendants of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew very powerful. And the land became filled with them. Now, hopefully there's like some kind of buzzer going off in your head right now. We should recognize this language because I talk about it all the time. It's a repetition of the original human vocation from Genesis 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, right? Have dominion. Order the world. And then in Genesis 2, till the earth and keep it. That's avad and shamar. Um, avad means to serve, work, but serve in service. And shamar is to protect or 10, keep. It's like, um, it's actually what, what you would use for beekeepers in the ancient world, Shamar. So Genesis ends with Jacob and Joseph's family moving to Egypt. And this long lost son, Joseph, is Pharaoh's right hand man. And he saves both Egypt and his family. 
But then he dies, and that whole generation dies. But we're told that what God had planned for humanity, the human vocation, it's, it's happening. They're in Egypt. It's working. They're being fruitful and multiplying. It's actually fulfilling the human vocation. The people are doing what God intended them to do. Things are going well in Egypt. They're not enslaved. They're multiplying. They're, they're flourishing. Real quick, I want to I take a look at the geography um, of the area. Just to get this in our head, we'll, we'll try to return to this each week at least a little bit so we understand what's happening. Um, you can see right there the Nile River is the big, that's the river valley in there. Um, so that's the Nile. And then the, then the triangle or kind of pyramid at the top is the, the delta. This is where most of the people live. Everything kind of to the left of that little border over on the right, red border on the right, is considered ancient Egypt. It was huge, big chunk of Africa. And then you, you can recognize probably the Sinai Peninsula there and the Red Sea. Um, Red Sea will figure prominently in our story. And then we're told that um, Pharaoh gave Joseph's family the land of Goshen, um, which is there kind of on the edge of the Nile River Delta, which, which is kind of a strategic move. Um, it's desert surrounding them on all sides except up that direction. And so this was, they were kind of a, a buffer between any invading army. They would hit the, the Israelites first in, in Goshen. And so they were kind of, that, that was their role, to be a little bit so, a source of protection, but also a source of cheap labor. If you study politics, you know, any empire has always had a source of cheap, if not free, labor. And Egypt was an empire. Egypt's culture, Egyptian culture, actually was the most advanced in the world at this time. It wasn't even really close. Um, they're known for their army. We all kind of know that because it's in our stories, their use of horses and, and chariots. But they, they had the most sophisticated um, culture, things like agricultural practices. I mean, they, they could move water around just to, to maximize arable land like nobody. They grew exotic vegetables and fruits. They had a balanced diet. Like they might have been the only people on the planet with a balanced diet at that time. They were kind to animals. They had customs where you couldn't mistreat animals. They domesticated dogs and cats. They were far advanced in things like architecture, engineering, mathematics. They built complex cities with city planning. They had mining operations, metalworks. They had their own navy, for heaven's sakes. They had um, developed one of the earliest forms of writing. They had a sophisticated religion. They had law and courts. They had civil rights for even the poor people had civil rights. They pioneered early forms of medicine, including surgery, would not recommend their methods. They weren't hugely effective, but they were experimenting. They were trying to learn from this. They had great artists, painters, sculptors, musicians, storytellers, chefs. And, and by the standards of, of the day back then, the entire nation of Egypt was incredibly affluent. I mean, they, they had social classes, a hierarchy, but even the poor did pretty well in Egypt in that day. All the men were like clean shaven. Everybody bathed every day so it wasn't just smelly as all get out, you know? And they, that, for, because of this, they were healthy. They had the finest fabrics anywhere. Fashion designers, tailors, beautiful jewelry, a lot of which survives to this day. 
Even they develop makeup and then customs around this. They had trends. They had fashion trends that you can chart down through the years. And because of Joseph's role and that story from Genesis of where he came in and saved everybody's bacon, um, Pharaoh sort of cut his family in on the blessings of Egypt. They, they got to be part of the most advanced society on earth at the time, which is a little bit funny because these guys were, you know, bumpkins. Like, they were, <laughs> they were not refined people. They're agricultural people. They were goat herders and sheep farmers and, and simple people. But they were, they were shrewd and, and mostly honest, but they loved to work. They were hard workers, and that's what Egypt needed was cheap labor, and that suited the, the family of Jacob just fine. And so for, for somewhere around 400 years, we're not sure exactly how long, somewhere around that time, Jacob's family prospered in Egypt. They weren't slaves until the very end. They were fruitful and multiplied and grew into a people, from a family to a people, who filled the land of Goshen and became a power in their own right. Let's read on. It says, Now there arose a Malek Kadash over Mitzrayim, a new king over Egypt, who did not, Yada Yosef, did not know, had no memory of Joseph. This is the first appearance, by the way, of the word Yada, which is a big one. If you, um, it means, Yada means to know. It's like um, in, in Yiddish, yada, 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 I know, I know, I know, right? It's so, so it's, it's I know, but it's an experiential knowledge. Like yada, yada, yada is you don't have to tell me. I already know. Like I am experiencing the truth of this. That's it. It's, it's a, not just mental. It's I get this with my body. In fact, it's sometimes a euphemism for sex. Like so-and-so knew their wife and she bore him a son, that kind of a thing. It conveys intimacy and concern and mutuality. So to, to yada requires relationship and care, and concern. And conversely, here, not to know is more than just ignorance. It's synonymous with indifference, with alienation, a lack of care and concern. So this, this new pharaoh, this new king, had no knowledge, yada, of jo- no memory of Joseph. And so he, he can't care for them. He has no relationship with them. Without, and that's part of Egypt's story. He, he just, he forgot, had no memory of what came before him. And so he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. This phrase, um, the Israelite people is really unique. It's Am B'nai Israel, the, um, the people Israel is what it is. But um, Am is a familial term. If they, um, goy would be just political. Am is about family. It's sometimes used for children or siblings. It's, it's why they're sometimes called the children of Israel or the sons of Israel. It's not just, um, it's not just blood relations. In fact, it's often used in terms of a military unit and the brotherhood that happens there. So it's not just blood relations. It's, it's like Amine is like brotherhood, sisterhood, um, and, and they become then too numerous, Rav Atsum, for Pharaoh's com- um, comfort, which means not um, Rav Atsum, it's not just size, it's power. They are potent. They are just sitting out there big and powerful. And so Egypt 
has been good to Jacob's family. They've, they've become bigger and more powerful. And they're allies with Egypt at this time. With this, they thought, deep connection through Joseph and Pharaoh. This is the story they told, and they kept it alive. But then this new Pharaoh comes along. He has no yada. He has no memory, no knowledge of this. All he can see is that they're getting too big and powerful, and so they are a threat to Egyptian security. Now, if enemies attack, we talked about this, we saw on the map, they'll come from the direction of Goshen. What if they decide to, to work with them? They'll, it says, rise from the ground. Remember, they, that's what they did. They, the Hebrews' industry was brick-making and agriculture. They worked literally in mud and dirt in, in the ground. And so what if they rise up from that and start saying, look, we're tired of the ground. We want in on the life that, that you guys have. Basically take Egypt's place. So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built garrison cities for Pharaoh, Pithom and Ramses. Pithom and Ramses are um, in Goshen. And so they basically built military, Egyptian military bases in their land. So now there's an occupying army to oppress them. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites the various labors that, made, that they made them perform. Ruthlessly, they made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of labors in the field. This word labors keeps coming up over and over and over. It's the same word we just talked about in Genesis in our vocation. Avad means to, to work, but, but to serve. Um, so this is supposed to be part of the human vocation, right? Till the land and keep it, serve it. Um, it's also connected to, from, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But here, it's, it's perverted, right? It, it, in, in fact, they, they kind of pair it with a couple of words. It's, it's different. There, there's... Um, Avad, but it's avad parek, ruthless avad, ruthless work. It, it's um, kashe avad. It's, it's work, but it's crushing. It's um, to the point of cruelty. And so this is, in the Hebrew, it's really exaggerated too because it's like, it keeps repeating. It's awkward. They, they made life bitter with work, the crushing work that they all worked. It's kind of like, like that. So the writer's contrasting Genesis where avad is a blessing and here where Avad has become a curse, is crushing them and dehumanizing them. Moreover, it says, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was called Shifra and the other Pua. When you attend the Hebrew women and see them giving birth, he said, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. However, the mid midwives were God-fearing women, so they didn't do as the king of Egypt ordered, but let the boys live. So against these mid midwives to kill off all future war warriors, make it look like stillbirths, and, and kind of trick the Hebrew people um, into thinking maybe like there's a plague or God is judging them in some way. However, it says the midwives were God-fearing women, right? So they didn't do as the king of Egypt ordered, but let the boys and the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and demanded of them, why have you done this and let the boys live? And the midwives, they're being coy here, right? They answered Pharaoh, it is because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. 
they go into labor and give birth before the midwife even arrives, right? And he doesn't yada these guys. He doesn't know they're signing them on. He has no relationship with them, right? And they're kind of looking down on the rubes from up in Israel, you know, they, with their refined culture here in Egypt. And there's, there's an interesting wordplay here. I can't do it justice. Um, it's ki hayo heina. Um, hayo is, uh, it, can mean, it can mean wild animals, so, so to somebody who doesn't know Hebrew well, like the, the Pharaoh, when they say this, he would think they're saying, Hebrew women are like, it's crazy. They're like wild animals. You just, they, they have their kids just like that. Um, but for, for the Jewish people, the Hebrew speakers, native speakers, they, they would see the context is full of life. They're too full of life to be oppressed by a dude like you. That's essentially what they were saying. Like, Hebrew women are too full of life to be dehumanized. They're too human to be dehumanized, right? This is actually the first act of civil disobedience in the Torah. And then it says, therefore, God prospered the midwives and the people continued to multiply and grow very powerful. So the, the human vocation is continuing, be fruitful and multiply. It's still happening, indeed, because the midwives feared God, he made them founders of families. It's kind of, it's this rich irony in the text. Pharaoh here isn't even given a name, but we know still to this day we're repeating the names of these two Hebrew midwives, Shepra and Pua. They're remembered. Okay, so what do we make of this? Um, well, in the Midrashi way, make of it as you will, right? But <laughs> I, I'll just raise one thing that I think has, I think, some resonance today, um, especially in light of this close connection between Genesis and chapter one here, especially as it regards the role of work and how to navigate relations in terms of making our living and subsisting in the world. I actually think this helps serve as a model for how we view the concept of systemic injustices. Like, what is systemic injustice according to Exodus 1? It's any system that keeps human beings from engaging in the original human vocation in a way that then leads to good work and, and the flourishing of everyone. I mean, our, our job is to organize our common life together, our relations our actions, our jobs, our workplaces, our industries, our systems of government and education and medicine and all of that stuff, to organize that in such a way that everybody can get in on the blessing. Everyone can bear the image of God. And in a sense, injustice, systemic injustice, is any system that gets in the way of that because it's inhuman, inhumane, dehumanizing. And this Pharaoh, he doesn't yada, he doesn't know the people. He doesn't know their story. He doesn't appreciate them. He has no relationship with them, right? Think of the execs on the whatever floor who aren't with the unwashed down in steerage in the cubicles, right? It's that kind of a situation here. He doesn't know them. All he knows is, is they're a threat to his own security and affluence. And he cares more about affluence and security than for these children of Israel. Benei, Israel. So, so he starts out with like harsh work conditions, then a military occupation. Then he ends up trying to commit a genocide 
and in some sense sort of succeeds, at least for a while. And by the way, it's not that God is um, randomly choosing sides here. We're calling them Israel. They weren't actually a nation Israel yet. This is, we'll see this later on in Exodus. So this, is, this is part of the sources and part of how we just, just view it here. But God, it's not like God's on team Israel against Egypt. God will work with anybody who wants to work with God, who's seeking human flourishing and that of the world. God blessed the pharaohs right alongside the people of God because God wants everyone to be free, right? To become human as human is meant to be. But anything that stands in the way of that, any system that's in the way of that is named injustice. Sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's a system, but if it oppresses people, this is injustice. If it keeps them from, from being human as human is meant to be. Think of, you know, racism or patriarchy or economic injustice, oligarchy, you know, corruption of, of any kind. And there, there are times, according to this story, that in order just for us to be human, as human is intended to be, that we have to end up resisting systems of injustice. And, and what is celebrated here in the first story is the Hebrew midwives and their civil disobedience, their refusal just to go along with injustice. And this sort of sets the pattern. It sets the tone for how God is going to ask his people, especially Moses and Aaron, to deal with injustice. Because God won't stand for it. Anything that keeps us from practicing our vocation, from our freedom to try to strive to be human, as human was meant to be, which isn't just personal, it's, it's social as well. It's not just from bondage in um, Egypt that God's trying to liberate us from. It's, it's sin and death and brokenness. It's any systemic situation or personal situation in which the people are not free to flourish. And so God is not about destroying enemies and, or even choosing sides. God's on the side of creation, of humanity. But he's looking for freedom. Freedom to continue being human as human meant to be. Like freedom is not just I get to do anything I want to do. Freedom is I am actually free to act like a human being is meant to act. The philosopher um, Camus said it this way, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. That seems right. That's really close. That's the midwives in this story. Too, too full of life to be, you know, charged with death. Too free to be in bondage. And that they help us see this is, this is the nature of what it means to be a human being. We're not meant to be slaves. We're meant to be free. Not free as in we can do whatever we want. Free to be human, rightly relating to one another and to God and to ourselves and to the world. And this is the task for like ordinary people like you and me. Sometimes we'll obey powerful people when they're cool. And sometimes we will disobey when they are chewing up those on the margins, right? This, this is where the story of Exodus begins. God takes a, a position on injustice and how it affects human um, 
hands. Just for a moment, I invite you to close your eyes just for a second. And when I say something like the system that is wrong, what comes to mind? The system that's chewing people up, what is it for you? What's, what's just the first one that pops into your head? The system that is, it just doesn't, it's not working. It's leaving out the little ones, the marginalized. Whatever comes to mind, just invite you to hold that in your heart for a moment. Just pray for it. For it to change. For God to soften the hearts of those who maintain the system. And maybe for, for you in your life to begin to engage in some sort of civil disobedience that exposes the pain, the injustice. Who are the family members, the friends, the coworkers, the neighbors that you could engage with? Lord, we lift these things up to you. We know that um, you love us and you love this world you have created and you want us to be free. And we don't know, um, we don't know why um, you, you cut us in on this deal that you made with Israel, but we're so glad you did. And we're so glad to get to be part of the people of God. pray for um, all the different systems and, and just situations that popped into the minds of everyone in Redemption Church. Pray that you would use us and activate us. And we pray as, as we dig into the book of Exodus that um, the scripture would come alive to us again. This summer, as we talk about on Sundays, as we meet together on Wednesdays at noon, as we um, talk about it with each other, as we just study on our own, we pray that the book of Exodus, the Shemot, would come to life for us. And we would see you, our God, our creator, in its pages. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand now, and we're going to receive communion. If you, um, you should have received the elements when you came in. If you didn't, though, um, Beth is right in the center in the back with the basket. You can grab some. Just invite you to hold it in front of you. As we say, what we always say, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and gave thanks for it, and he broke it, and he passed it around to all his guys, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup in the same way, passed it around. They shared this same common cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant, a new deal in my blood. He said, every time you get together, eat this bread, drink the cup. Remember who you are, that you are somehow part of me. And he said, every time you gather, do this. And so that's why we receive communion each week.
And so I would invite you just to hold it in front of you, and let's pray a blessing on the elements. Lord, we give you thanks for this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and always. Amen. I invite you to receive communion and then join us in our closing song.